All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans 1, 16 and 17. Just two verses, but two very important verses that really are the thesis of the letter. In fact, verse 16 is one of the more well-known verses in the letter to Romans. It is the verse that says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. Now, before we jump in and look at the details of these two verses, let's make sure we have the contextual setting right, just so we know how it connects. Because indeed, verse 16 begins with the word for, and so in Paul's mind, it's directly connected to the preceding paragraph. So we need to make sure we at least understand what's going on. And here's the primary thing you want to notice, is that in the preceding paragraph. In our last session, we explored that. Paul is really introducing himself and his ministry to the Roman church by way of this letter. And he has mentioned there the idea of the gospel several times. He said in verse 1 that he's set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 9, he said that he serves God in his spirit in the gospel about God's Son. And then he has actually ended the preceding section by saying that for his part, he's eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome as well. And then he begins by saying, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so that's really, really important for us to notice is that the preceding uh, introduction to Paul's ministry really revolves around this idea of the gospel, how he is a servant of the gospel. He's under orders to preach the gospel, to preach it to all people, and that he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome as well. And thus he begins verses 16 and 17 by saying, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. And that's really important in both not only the literary context, but the historical context as well. In the ancient Near East, to experience shame was really the opposite of honor. We live not in an honor and shame culture, but the ancient world was an honor and shame culture. And if you're living in a part of the world today that is more of an honor and shame culture, you get maybe the sense of this, that to experience shame is to experience dishonor, disgrace. It is something that in the biblical context, the biblical writers say they regular experience when God's enemies appear to be triumphing. When they're winning out, you're experiencing disgrace, dishonor, and you plead to God, for example, in the Psalms, not to be dishonored before your enemies, but for God to come and defend you and vindicate you. That shame and honor are two very, really deep states of life. It's more than just being embarrassed. It is suffering disgrace, suffering dishonor, suffering shame, uh, in contrast to honor itself. And Paul says that he doesn't experience shame and dishonor with the gospel. He's not ashamed of it. He's not afraid to talk about it. The fact that Caesar is in charge and appears to be winning, that he makes his great boast about his supremacy and his greatness and his kingship and his lordship, that doesn't bring any shame to Paul in view of the truth of the gospel, that Paul will continue to preach the gospel. Why? Well, because he says in verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And so, The gospel is the divinely appointed means to bring salvation to the world, in the words of Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans. 
the idea is that somehow telling this story, telling the story of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, telling the story of the cross and the resurrection, somehow telling this story unleashes God's power and incites faith and draws people to God himself so that they can be saved. That's what the gospel does. And remember, we said that the gospel is news. It's not a plan of salvation even. It's news, specifically news about what God has done in Jesus. So somehow telling this news report unleashes God's power to bring people to faith and thus to salvation. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power to salvation. And it's God's power to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek. And and those two categories represent really the two main categories of people in the ancient world, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. And so this is a way of saying all people, that the gospel is the power of salvation for anybody and everybody. Notice specifically, anybody and everybody who believes. That's going to be really important in both what he says here in verse 17, but throughout the rest of the letter, the, the gospel unleashes God's saving power on the basis of faith, specifically faith in Jesus the Messiah. In fact, notice what he says in verse 17. Paul says that the gospel unveils the righteousness of God from faith to faith. And so verse 17 reads like this, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's work through the details then of verse 17. Let's take the phrase righteousness of God. The gospel reveals, displays, unveils the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God, that phrase grammatically could refer to either the righteousness that God gives or the righteousness that God has. Uh, in, in other words, it's either uh, the, the righteousness that is a gift from God as he gives in salvation, and Paul will describe that a little bit later, particularly in chapter 4 where he talks about Abraham being declared righteous because of his faith, and sometimes theologians refer to that as this idea of like imputed righteousness, this gift of righteousness that God gives people by virtue of their faith in him. And so the phrase, the righteousness of God here in verse 17, could be referring to that. Some scholars have taken it that way. But I think the other choice is a better choice, where we talk about the righteousness that God himself has. And the reason I think that's the better choice is when Paul expands the thesis statement of Romans in chapter 3, it's clear he's talking about God's justice, God's own righteousness. Not the righteousness he gives, but the righteousness he has. And not only that, but in the context of all of the Old Testament that really shaped Paul's thinking, particularly the Psalms and Isaiah, there's a lot of talk about God's righteousness. And so, I think it's best for us to understand the phrase, the righteousness of God, to refer to God's own righteousness. Let's take a look at the details of that so I can show you what I'm talking about. Here in 116 and 17, as I noted, this is the thesis statement for the letter, that, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that it displays God's righteousness. 
Well, then what Paul does coming out of this is he has a long series of arguments to show that all men need this righteousness and that this righteousness is indeed going to be on the basis of faith in Jesus, the Messiah. After making that argument showing how all people are equally condemned before God, then in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, you get what I like to think of as a more complete restatement of the thesis. So 321 through 26 of Romans is a more complete restatement of the thesis that's initially stated here in 1, 16 through 17. And there it's obvious that Paul is talking about God's very own righteousness. So let me read you 321 through 26, just so you can hear it in connection with this phrase, the righteousness of God. Pay attention as I read to all the references to righteousness of God or his righteousness, or even the idea of just and justice, which comes in Greek in, from the same root word as the word righteousness. So it's part of the same word family. Just listen to for those terms as I read 21 through 26. Here it says 321 through 26 reads like this. But now, apart from the Torah, the righteousness of God has been revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God that's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified, again, that word justified from the same family as uh, righteous or righteousness, so being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you hear that? It's God's righteousness is manifested. It's his righteousness that's being demonstrated. It's his righteousness that is at the present time so that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it seems when Paul restates the thesis there in 321 through 26, he's clearly talking about God's own righteousness that is being displayed in and through the work accomplished by Jesus. And thus, here in 117, I think it's best for us to understand the righteousness of God as God's own righteousness. Now, let's add a little bit more detail to that by looking at the Old Testament background, because the Old Testament background to this phrase really brings a lot of clarity to what Paul is saying. Uh, particularly in the Psalms or in Isaiah, you hear this. Let me just read a couple Psalms where this idea of God's righteousness shows up, because it helps us understand what is meant by God's righteousness. Psalm 71, 1 and 2 says this, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Do you notice how God's righteousness there comes to save and to deliver uh, God's people? Or Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Notice the parallel. He has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness. These two go together. God's righteousness is connected to God bringing his salvation. And he's done it here in Psalm 98 in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And that idea of God's righteousness shows up like this all throughout the Psalms. You see it even in Isaiah 
in several places. Let me just read you a little bit out of Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 um, says this, beginning in verse 4, Pay attention to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, this is God speaking, and I will set my justice as a light for the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Um, and so God's righteousness is directly, again, connected to his salvation. It's going to go forth to all the people. He's going to bring justice to the world. He's going to bring salvation to the world. And so I think the appropriate way for us to summarize God, God's righteousness is as God's saving justice. God's saving justice. When God brings justice to the world to rescue and to deliver, to rescue and deliver the whole world from the clutches of the evil one, to rescue the world from unrighteousness and wickedness. And so some of that means sometimes judging wickedness and judging the wicked and rescuing God's people and bringing his righteousness. It's God's saving justice. N.T. Wright puts it this way in his commentary on Romans. He says, when therefore God's righteousness was unveiled, the effect would be precisely that the world would receive justice, that rich restorative, much to be longed for justice, of which the psalmist had spoken of with such feeling. That's what we're talking about when we talk about God's righteousness. And Paul says here in Romans 1.17 that the gospel is uh, the thing that reveals God's righteousness, that God's righteousness is unveiled in and through the gospel, which is the story of Jesus who brought God's saving justice to the world. And verse 17 goes on to say that the experience of God's saving justice, God's righteousness, is from faith to faith, which probably is just a, a way of saying it's all encompassed by faith. It's experienced in faith. It's received by faith, that faith is the entire locale, the entire context, the entire means of experiencing and welcoming and receiving this righteousness of God, this saving justice of God. There might be more to that phrase, from faith to faith, than that, but I think bare minimum, that's what it's about. Uh, some have taken it to mean like it was it was achieved by the faith and faithfulness of Jesus, and it's received by our faith. Perhaps that's correct, and certainly theologically that makes perfect good sense. But I don't think we have to read it that way. I think we can just take from faith to faith as the righteousness of God is experienced completely, solely, and totally on the basis of faith. In fact, that's the point Paul makes in the last half of verse 17 when he quotes a passage from the Old Testament. The second half of verse 17 says, as it is written, setting up the quote, but the righteous one shall live by faith. And the point being in context here in Romans that this whole experience of God's righteousness is God's saving justice is going to be experienced by faith. That Old Testament quote comes from a very important passage for New Testament theology. It's actually quoted several times in the New Testament, really making the same point it is here. The passage is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And whenever you come across an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it's always a good idea to try to go back and understand that passage in its original Old Testament context 
so that at least we have some sense of what it meant there, and then we might be able to figure out what's going on with it in its New Testament context. In the case of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, God has just told the prophet Habakkuk that the Babylonians are going to come as God's uh, judgment on Israel for their idolatry and their rebellion of God. And the prophet then complains to God and questions God's, God's justice, God's righteousness. That's what he's doing. To which God counters that, no, the Babylonians are going to get theirs too. They will be held accountable. They will be judged as well. And they will experience God's judgment for their unrighteousness. Nevertheless, God says to Habakkuk, the righteous person is going to live by faith, by loyal, trusting obedience to me. And so in the context of Habakkuk, what God is telling Habakkuk is, look, I am going to bring my justice to the world. My justice will actually play out completely and perfectly. It's going to happen in your case. It's going to happen in the Babylonians' case. And in the case of Romans 1.17, Paul is saying, and it's going to happen ultimately in our case, in and through Jesus. I will bring my justice to the world. You just need to live by faith. You need to trust me remain faithful to me, continue to obey me. That's God's point to Habakkuk there in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And that really fits perfectly here in Romans chapter 1, 17, where uh, Paul is saying that now God has brought his ultimate saving justice. And yes, it was amazing, and it was incredible, and it was confusing all at the same time. But God has done it, and he's done it in a, in really a paradoxical sort of way where the the Romans themselves, who looked like they're in charge, uh, uh, they used evil and put to death God's Messiah, but God rescued him and vindicated him. And now God has made Jesus king and Lord, and he's the world's true king. And so you, if you are going to experience God's saving justice, then you just need to trust God and live by faith in his king, because the righteous one shall live by faith. So now what Paul is going to do, beginning from this point and really through the rest of the letter, Paul is going to display how the gospel has unveiled the very righteousness of God, how it has brought salvation and justice to the world. He's going to raise the question about the place of Israel, since so many of them have rejected the Messiah. What does that say about the righteousness of God? And so everything Paul is going to address, beginning at this point and onward in the letter to the Romans, is all about the righteousness of God and how in and through Jesus, God has brought his righteousness, his saving justice into the world.